Welcome to What Matters Now, another informal conversation between me, Amanda Borchel Dan, and Chaviv Retigur, our senior analyst at the Times of Israel. Welcome, Chaviv. Hi, Amanda. It's good to be with you. It's seven in the morning for me because I'm in New York, but I can handle this. I can do it. You're an early riser. You have many kids. You've been through this. It's fine. Chaviv, you know, we've known each other for a long time. How many years? About 18? Something like that? Yeah, since the uh, first time I ever walked into the Jerusalem Post Office back in 2005, right? The disengagement, so... That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, I don't know if I've ever told you where I made my embarrassingly naive decision to make Aliyah. No, you didn't. The way, there's something embarrassing and naive about you that I don't know. This is important. Everybody pay <laughs> it, attention. It definitely is. So, picture this. Amanda, 23 years old, in uh, the summer of 1999, my first time in Israel, and really I haven't left since. And I'd asked a friend to come up with a list of sites I should visit in Jerusalem, where I was living at the time. And on that list was uh, Mount Herzl. I had no idea what it was. It looked to me just as viable as the zoo. So in my short shorts and my tank top, as I wore way back then in the summer of 1999, I marched myself over to Mount Herzl. And lo and behold, it turned out to be a military cemetery, which obviously anyone who had read any of the guidebooks that were really available to me at the time, which I hadn't read, would have known, obviously. So I walked around the cemetery, and I just buried my brother a couple years earlier in the United States, who was in the U.S. Army. And as I was walking around this military cemetery in Jerusalem, I realized, wow, you know, all these ideas I've been having about uh, staying in Israel. Of course, I'm enamored that everyone here is Jewish, including the garbage men and including everyone else. And that's just a wonderful thing. But this, to me, had to be the moment of reckoning. Did I accept the idea that it was possible that my future husband or my future children could end up buried here? And I said to myself, this is what the state was founded on. The defense of this state is so important. They built a whole mountain to commemorate those who have fallen in its defense. And I said to myself, yes, I'm willing to take this upon myself. I, d I really hope it never comes to it, obviously, but I'm willing to take that upon myself. And why was that so naive, Khaviv? Why was that naive? Because you come to realize the defense of the state is not the same burden for everyone. And that's what we're here to talk about this week. Of course, on Monday, there was a, a high court hearing about the idea that the ultra-Orthodox and other parts of Israeli society are not conscripted into the army. And this is an ongoing fight for decades and decades. And in, indeed, in 1998, the court determined that executive action cannot be used as a legal basis for something so far-reaching as military service exemptions. But again, in June 2023, the government passed a resolution that now is being petitioned, which instructs the IDF not to draft ultra-Orthodox yeshiva students, and it's considered um, somewhat quasi-legal-ish, not really, what do you think, is it? Well, that's a very good question. Um, 
I think you raised the question exactly right. There is a part of Israeli society that really feels it right now, right? My family, your family, I have um, brothers-in-law who fought in the war. I don't have children in the war. Um, I'm too old to go to the war. So I have been, I would say, in a second degree removed from the war. But hundreds of thousands of Israeli families just spent, you know, some of them paid the highest price, but all of them paid some price. And the ultra-Orthodox community didn't. And we just had uh, local elections in which uh, turnout is higher among ultra-Orthodox towns, in part because there are no reservists and there are no displaced uh, families from those ultra-Orthodox communities. There is a sense among a lot of Israelis. And, you know, when you talk to Haredi Israelis themselves, there is a growing awareness among Haredi Israelis that they are a kind of polity apart, a life apart from the rest of us. And that that is something that is starting to have costs. And it's starting to have costs for reasons we've written about a lot at the Times of Israel and talked about on the podcast. When Israel was founded, they were 3% of Israel. And they demanded the right to live apart from everybody and to continue to live as though they're in some kind of imagined East European shtetl. And everybody was okay with it because they were this tiny little religious minority that you just respect and everybody gets on with their lives. But they're 13% of the population. After October 7th, one of the lessons the army learned is that we're going to have to have a much larger military. We're going to have to have an army with massive numbers of infantry battalions deployed on all our borders, assuming that our enemies haven't built all of their military assets not to use them. But in fact, we have to assume they're going to use them. And therefore, we have to assume October 7th are being planned now by the, in, in Lebanon. We know for a fact that Hezbollah in Lebanon is planning them. And therefore, if 86,000 Israelis displaced from the north are ever to go back home, they're going to go home with massive deployments of battalions of infantry that right now the army just doesn't have. Reservists, hundreds of thousands of reservists came out of Gaza over the last month, six weeks, and a lot of them were told point blank, be ready to fight again in June. We don't know if that means the army has a kind of a preparation, a schedule of preparedness for potential conflicts, which is entirely possible, or if there's some kind of a plan for June. The fact that the army said this to, you know, 200,000 people who were then being sent to civilian life meant it wasn't a great state secret. So it's probably the former and not the latter. But but it highlights the scale at which the state, and in its current form, right, surrounded by enemies, from Hamas to Hezbollah to Iran itself and all of its proxies in Syria and Yemen and Iraq, actually mean it when they say they're going to destroy us. And so we actually have to be mobilized at a scale we've never been before. And 13% of the population literally, just demographically, can't sit it out. We used to know that, we used to believe, and it, it was true, really, until October 7, that as the population grows, the universal draft necessarily can't continue to grow. The army can't just grow ad infinitum. It's, it's expensive. It's useless. The army doesn't need, you know, I don't know what, 600,000 soldiers. The exact number of soldiers isn't known to us, but nevertheless, it can't just grow infinitely. And so it's okay that there are quite a few people in Tel Aviv who get exemptions, that there's this blanket exemption for the ultra-Orthodox. That's okay. It's it, The army is as big as it needs to be. And now it's not. And now the question becomes, what do we do 
What do they do? How do we talk to them about them no longer living that life apart? In so many ways, they have become deeply Israeli. Ten years ago, officially, ultra-Orthodox Ashkenazi parties like United Torah Judaism were officially anti-Zionist. They couldn't be ministers in the government. They could only be deputy ministers because then you didn't swear allegiance to the country. They couldn't uh, participate in Memorial Day ceremonies as representatives of the government. Um, Today, they are ministers and they participate in Memorial Day ceremonies as representatives of the government. They have done a 180 and just about face on the question of public um, demonstrations of loyalty to Zionism. And they did it like any conservative society changes, by pretending it wasn't a change, by pretending it had always been so. So there is this identification. People who live in Israel talk to Haredim, do business with Haredim, visit their bookstores like I like to do. Um, Also know that just over the last 25 years, when I first went into university, I was studying Jewish thought, and the cheapest way to buy a tome of Maimonides was at a Haredi bookstore. And they had one kind of lingo when you went into that bookstore. 25 years later, their lingo has normalized to the Israeli-Hebrew mainstream. They curse like secular Israelis. That is not a small signal of a small cultural change. It's a fundamental thing. They've shifted from being anti-Zionist to being right-wing Zionist. In the polls, in actual questions, when we ask them their opinions on actual issues. And so... There's a change happening that's deep, and it's in their political consciousness and in their identity, but it hasn't yet come to the question of military service. And now we have to talk about that military service because we, for the first time, I think in Israel's history, we actually need them. And that makes this all very difficult. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. You keep talking about 13%, but just to put that into more specific numbers, last week the IDF's personnel directorate told a Knesset committee that that 13% represents 66,000 young men who have received a deferral from the military over the past year. That's reportedly an all-time record even. And it should be said, however, that some 540 of them decided to enlist post-October 7th. So 540 decided to enlist of the 66,000 who are of military age. It's really interesting. Now, 
as I mentioned, on Monday, there was a high court hearing. And the resolution of that hearing is that the state has until March 24th to explain why the June 2023 resolution, which instructed the IDF not to draft ultra-Orthodox yeshiva students for nine months, why this resolution is legal. And the resolution itself came as a patch to a law. So what we've been seeing for the past, I don't know, 25 years or so is just patches upon patches upon patches because essentially any law that has been legislated so far has been struck down by the High Court of Justice because it is not equal. And do you see in any way that there could be a law that could be drafted to include some kind of ultra-Orthodox deferral, maybe not for the entire 66,000 eligible men, but that there still could be a law that would show some kind of equality at the same time? That's the million-dollar question. I don't know if it's possible to draft a law that will that will actually um, draft some significant number of Haredim. I know somebody who is um, a graduate of the Ponybezh and Slavodka yeshivas, deep, deep within the, um, even the elite, not just the mainstream, the elite of the Lithuanian Haredi community in Israel. And he decided to after finishing some a significant part of his yeshiva studies, he's now at a fancy law school uh, overseas. Um, quite an intelligent guy. He decided to go serve in the in the army, and he was not only served uh, full term as an infantryman, but he he just served three months in Gaza. And he has written um, on this question: Can my friends? at the Ponibe Yeshiva, one of the more significant and famous and, and prestigious of the Lithuanian yeshivas in Israel, can they be drafted? And he, his comments were very helpful to me because a lot of the public debate in Israel, um, he kind of tosses aside as irrelevant, as as just sort of fluff and rhetoric. For example, um, Haredi politicians like to say that when their students sit and study in yeshiva, that creates a kind of spiritual protection on the country that is equal to the military protection that my two brothers-in-law endangered their lives to give us. And that that kind of talk about how this about the spiritual protection of yeshiva students creates so much anger and resentment um, that, it, it, to my mind, it counts as what we call in Judaism a chilul Hashem, a desecration of God's name. When in the name of God you do things that are just manifestly bad and wrong and unfair and evil, um, he says that is a kind of rhetorical tick that should not be taken seriously. No Haredi person actually takes that argument seriously. The great problem with drafting people to the army, according to him, someone who went through the full infantry service after coming out of the Pony Yeshiva, is just the actual life of the army. You cannot have a serious Haredi religious life in the military. You can't for reasons that are sometimes unfair. Um, the military doesn't, you know, I mean, the military is a big bureaucracy that's busy preparing or fighting wars, right? And so it doesn't have time to sit and think with you about the details of your specific rituals that you have to keep if you're going to be Haredi. 
but also um, some reasons that are very good and right and legitimate. Uh, the army can't create higher levels of kashrut for all its military bases so that a few Haredim can travel throughout the military and eat at all the different cafeterias because it's extremely expensive. There's music in the army. Soldiers play their favorite music. Haredim can't hear that music. A lot of that music is modern kinds of music that has a lot of cursing and or, or, or sexual innuendos, etc., um, soldiers often talk to each other in ways that Haredim don't talk to each other. You know, it's hard to imagine a time in English when the word hell was was actually a horrifying word that got you ostracized in in civil in civil society. Um, but the but the taboo used to be religious terminology. Then taboo became sexual terminology. Today, taboos in English probably have shifted to racial terminology. Well, among Haredim, that that taboo of sexual terminology is still there. And soldiers are constantly yelling sexual terms, even as just sort of a a slang of affection to each other. There are all these ways, and there are a hundred others, and he kind of lays them out in a way that's very convincing, that a a simple Haredi person, eager to do their part, in order to get drafted into the military, and it's not the military's fault, simply can't live as a Haredi person in the military. That, he says, is the fundamental problem. And I have to respect that problem. What if this whole issue where we have secular politicians screaming about equality and we have Haredi politicians screaming about the spiritual protection of the students studying and then making the the secular ones hate the Haredi more because our kids are actually dying while your kids are sitting there spiritually protecting us— what if the actual issue is a simple issue of religious lifestyle and we have to respect religious lifestyle? Then what? What do we do then? And I think that I am coming around to the idea that first of all, we create as much as possible Haredi tracks within the army. There's been for 20 years um, a uh, battalion that's now I think the size of a brigade um, that is for Haredi soldiers in the infantry. Most of the soldiers who serve in it haven't actually been Haredi. They've used that sort of Haredi framework. They're very right-wing, very conservative, very observant religious Zionists. They would have served anyway. Um, There haven't actually been a lot of Haredim funneled to that place, but what that unit has done is taught the army how to have a Haredi unit. That seems to me like one solution, not the totality of the solutions. Um, the uh, Muslim conservative Muslim Bedouin community came to the army and said, we would like a battalion that has an imam attached to it, that has a Muslim sort of ritual life in it so that our soldiers can feel comfortable. And the army built that unit for them. And so why not build, um, and by the way, that battalion of Bedouin has served in Gaza, etc. It's actually considered quite an elite unit. Why not build that for the ultra-Orthodox? And that's been done, and that's a small part of the solution. But we have a much larger part. 66,000 people are not going to serve you know, in Haredi, military, religious military units in the Israeli army. It's just not a thing that's going to happen. Nobody knows how to build it. And so we need to start talking about ways in which Haredi national service, Haredi civil service in civil society, Haredi service in the, in the rescue services. Haredim have built out in this country some of the finest rescue services, ambulance services, um, you know, medical services of the country. Why don't we find a way for that to be the focus? We'll have these military options, but that to be the focus of their service and free up Israelis who can serve in the military to shift out of those very necessary services into military service that is much more specifically military. I think that that's the direction going forward, and I think it from 
Haredi soldiers who want to serve or desperate to serve served in the with finest distinction and coming out and explaining to us, you want to get sixty thousand Haredim to serve in the army. It, it's not going to be in some simple, you know, we're going to stamp some stamp, we're going to pass some law, and then everybody's going to serve because that's the law. They're not going to give up their religion for the army, and so we need to find other ways to get them involved. Religious exemptions to military service is something we do respect in general as, as a society. There's just too many of them now to give them up demographically just because we need a larger army. So we have to find those other ways. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. Everything you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. And if we uh, replace Haredi with a female, for example, so there are female tank units, and obviously they were, of course, heroes of October 7th, some of these female tankistiot, the women who drove and just really, really guarded and were heroes by every measure. But at the same time, if you take some of these units, for example, in Caracal, where my son is serving, he's in a basic training still, it's a mixed unit. It may have started out as female, and then they mix it up. Or maybe from the beginning it was mixed up. But there is a great advantage in the army serving as a melting pot as well. You can keep everything segregated, as you're saying, but at the same time, for the cohesiveness of Israeli society, the army is the great crucible in a way. I know through my son right now, and you must know through your own experiences, Khaviv, that in the army, you met people you would never have run across ever in Israel. And why should the Haredi society be any different in this way? Why should it be sheltered exclusively? I'll take you one further. First of all, that was exactly my military service. When I was a sergeant, my uh, commander, my direct commander, my platoon commander, a lieutenant, uh, was a Druze man named Kamal. I admired him. I served with him. He led the ambushes that I joined when we were sitting on the mountainsides of the West Bank back in 2001, trying to catch suicide bombers uh, coming into Israel to blow up on buses. And I learned from him. We had long chats about girlfriends, and we had long chats about the village, and we had, he wanted to know about America, where I had just gone to high school. And that exact 
feeling of a crucible. I also served in the ultra-Orthodox unit that we talked about, in the Haredi Nachal was what it was called at the time. They couldn't send um, their soldiers to the medics course because the medics course a lot of the um trainers and um the most elite medics of the israeli army are women and they can't serve with women that's part of the conditions of creating this Haredi unit and so they had to bring medics from outside and i was a medic outside <laughs> in a different unit in an infantry unit elsewhere and i volunteered to come in and be company command staff for these young new Haredi i think it was their second cohort and their fourth cohort i served with and and so i met Haredim and i met i mean i met them in the sense of sleeping in a tent with them for 6 months i met Druzim i met all kinds of different israelis i also met kibbutznikim who uh, you know for a kid who did ha- had half his childhood basically be in america um, as an adult, as a young adult to now encounter even the Israelis who seem to be from my part of Israel is still a, an important, as you said, melting pot crucible experience that brings us together. I have a lot more respect and knowledge about the different communities of Israel because of that experience. And it's a shame if they don't take part in it. I'll just say that um, it's okay that when we build out other systems for them to serve in, or these can be military systems, by the way. They, they, they can be part of non-combat. A lot of the concerns that were raised by this um, Haredi soldier who served in an elite infantry unit uh, involved specifically the conditions of combat battalions. What if Haredim just are focused on places where they're essentially in a Tel Aviv office and you can easily maintain the kind of lifestyle that they need to maintain their religious lives. There are solutions. Giving up on the military question is not something we can afford anymore. But it, but I think that, you know, everything you're talking about and also the the way you started this whole conversation with you with you starting to think well, you weren't starting, you were already deep into this thinking, but but how much the question of sacrifice and solidarity shaped your understanding of this question. And there is I don't, I don't know how to put this. One of the, it's something I like to remind my kids of, one of the foundational commandments of, 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 of Jewish law is gratitude. To always understand the good that is done to you and be grateful for it and actively and thoughtfully grateful for it. What the Haredim have built in Israel is a version of the old European Haredism that never actually existed in Europe. I don't mean that their lifestyle didn't exist in Europe. I mean that the scale of their community didn't exist in Europe. When the Haredim come to Israel and are part of early, early Israel in the late 40s, early 50s, the overwhelming priority of their community is to rebuild what was destroyed. Um, It's something that Secular Jews don't always realize, and certainly I think English-speaking Jews don't really realize, but the vast majority of the Jews killed in the Holocaust spoke Yiddish. I mean, well above 80%. The Haredi world and the sort of East European peasant Jewish world was the world that was erased, more than the Western-educated, emancipated Jewish world, a lot of which escaped in time to various places, especially Israel. And so the priority for the Haredim in the early years of the state was to rebuild the lost world of the yeshivas, to rebuild the lost world of Jewish learning. And under Israel, and under Israeli protection, and under Israeli uh, investment, they did that. And they did that at a scale that is 
literally unimaginable. They still have that ethos of rebuilding what was lost, but they've already built tenfold whatever ever existed. I think it makes it all the more poignant what you're saying right now is the fact that children of Holocaust survivors such as Benny Gantz and Yair Lapid, I'm not sure about Gary Eisenkot, are are the politicians who are pushing for the Haredi enlistment. They are the ones who deeply, fully understand the sacrifice that their parents' families went through in the Holocaust. And at the same time, these are pretty much the only voices uh, who are really driving the idea that, quote, all segments of society must serve their country. Yeah, but I, I agree. I agree with you, and I agree with them. But but let me take it. But I think I think Haredim owe us a real not, not an apology, but but a reckoning. The fact is that the Haredi society as it exists today is an Israeli invention. The fact that the average birth rate is something like six and a half children per women happened in Israel. Okay, hey, in hey, the founding of Khabib. I mean, yeah. that's not that much. I mean, come on, you're talking to a mother of seven. <laughs> Amanda, you're in the wrong community. I'm sorry. You are a Haredi <laughs> in everything but actual religion. Um, but the fact is that before 1955, the average for Haredi women was three children per woman. Um, it, at the founding of the state, 400 yeshiva students were granted a special exemption, just like special, you know, incredible, talented sports, uh, you know, uh, athletes and um, artists were also granted special exemptions so that if you're some kind of potentially world-class cellist, you didn't lose the three years to, that you needed to become a world-class cellist by a military service that didn't, right? It, there, there are reasons to give these exemptions from military service there are reasons to give them to artists and athletes and yeshiva students and 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 potential budding physicists if they're genuinely brilliant. That 400 was still only 800 in 1975, and it was under Begin's government, and it was under a government that began in 1977 to be dependent on the Haredi parties that it ballooned to 60,000. In other words, both when it comes to birth rate, when it co- in, in 1979. I wrote an article about this back in May. That's why I have these numbers. In 1979, 85% of Haredi men had jobs. Today, that's below 50%. So the the Haredi community that we have today that lives on this welfare system, that refuses to serve, by the way, in the early years of the state, the Haredi signatories to the Declaration of Independence, the leaders of the Haredi community, political and religious, they were more likely than not to have children fighting in the war, in the army. So the Haredi community that we built today is not the old Haredism of Europe. It's a brand new Haredism created by Israel, created by an Israeli welfare state. And when you parse that out to just the actual institutions, for example, uh, the Mir Yeshiva, the probably the flagship of Haredi Yeshivas, um, at its heyday, at its most significant moment in the 1920s, in Mir, in Belarus, what is today Belarus, it had 400 students. And today, it has 9,000. So, the the Belzer Yeshiva was almost wiped out in Poland in 1939, and it was a single Yeshiva. Today in Israel, the Belz Hasidim have 12 Yeshivas. The point is, Haredi society owes us more than to negotiate a way to just kind of serve somewhat to free up other people to go to the army. I think that's a viable political and cultural and social solution. But I want more from them. I want 
gratitude. The Haredi world has grown to a place, to, it, has, it has brought back what was destroyed, which was its overriding impulse and what its rabbis talked about as the great need of the moment back in 1945 and 1948. It has grown back tenfold. And what enabled them to grow back tenfold, to reach that astonishing birth rate, to live without working at such astonishing rates, and to have these yeshivas turn into institutions that are at the highest levels of Haredi learning 20 times the size they ever were at their heyday in Eastern Europe. What allowed that is the Israel that was built around them by the secular Israelis. And so this Haredi vision of themselves as this, as this bubble that's moving through history unchanging, as this ship sailing past all the tumultuousness of history and carrying its sacred mission forward untouched by its surroundings, that vision of itself is an act of profound ingratitude. And it has to change because they live on our, our sacrifices on our taxes, on our service, and they have served in the past, and they know how to pay taxes. It's not this this synchronization of their willingness to live at other people's expense has become, in Jewish religious halachic terms, a sin. And it's time that they, I, I, I want to have this conversation that this, you know, soldier who's a graduate of Ponybridge is, is helping guide my own thinking and many other people that I know during my service in the Haredi Nachar, I met, I met people who dropped out of yeshivas and had a very difficult life and then found themselves again in the army and have since gone on to careers at universities and high tech and the media. I, I, I talk to them. I want to understand what Haredim need in order to serve. But I need the Haredi community to get up and say, everything we have built and everything we now have and all the vast success and all the restoration of everything that was lost in the Holocaust is thanks to these other Jews around us. And if we don't have a culture of hakarat tov, of gratitude, which is a mitzvah, it is a commandment of Jewish religious practice, then we are the sinners in this story. I want that. And I can't get away from wanting that. And they owe it to me, and I want to hear them say it. Chaviv, thank you for all of your insights today. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for joining us on this week's What Matters Now. Please check out another installment next week. If you have any questions or comments about this What Matters Now or any other episode, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. Thank you, and until next week, Shalom. Shalom.